from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life, the conversation in which we explore everything related to work and the rest of your life, your family, community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of our leadership program, both of which I launched 30 years ago. Is that even possible? Yes, it is. Now I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership, and you can visit totalleadership.org for information on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. New episodes of this show premiere Thursdays at 5 p.m. Eastern here on Sirius XM channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business. And you can follow me at Stu Friedman. Well, there's a lot of advice in the world about how to succeed and set goals for yourself or your team. But if you're like most people, you're probably still struggling. Am I right? Well, my guest today says that it's because we're probably going about it in the wrong way. It comes down to strategy. Katie Milkman has devoted her career to uncovering what helps people change. And her new book, which you must get if you want to learn how to change, it's called How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. Katie, welcome back to Work and Life. Thank you. I'm excited to be back. Well, it's great to have you here. Last, uh, I think it was like seven years ago when we were first starting out on the show. Let me tell listeners who might not remember that conversation a little bit more about you. Katie Milkman is an award-winning behavioral scientist and the James G. Dinan professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania. She's my colleague. She hosts Charles Schwab's popular behavioral economics podcast, Choiceology, and is the co-founder and co-director of the Behavior Change for Good Initiative, which is a research center whose mission is to advance the science of lasting behavior change. And that work has been chronicled by Freakonomics Radio. She's worked with or advised dozens of organizations on how to spur positive change, including Google, the U.S. Department of Defense, the American Red Cross, 24-Hour Fitness, Walmart, and Morningstar. Her research is regularly featured in major media outlets, in addition to the one you're listening to right now, such as the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, National Public Radio, and elsewhere. All right, Katie. Well, so you, your wonderful new book, How to Change, starts with an extended story about um, one of my favorite tennis players, uh, Andre Agassi. Before we get into that story and his relationship with Brad Gilbert and how that's related to how to change, let me ask you, after Serena Williams, who is the GOAT in tennis? (laughs) Oh, wow. That's really hard. I know. I wanted to start difficult and then get easy. (laughs) I'm glad you started with Serena Williams because that's a good answer. Maybe Federer. Probably. Okay. All right. She's a Federer person. That's good to know. Um, I'm with you on that, Katie. So we're off to a great start here. Um, Well, why did I ask you that? Because I know from reading your book that you are um, well steeped in tennis. Tell us briefly the story of, of Agassi, whose incredible autobiography, Open, is a must read. It's just so beautifully done. Um, why did you tell that story about him and Gilbert at the start of your book? Yeah. And, and I double that endorsement, by the way, one of my favorite books of all time is his autobiography. Um, well, you've already given one of the reasons, which is that tennis isn't a big part of my life. I was a really serious and competitive player and played in division one college tennis. And, and so um, there's a lot of life lessons I've learned from, from tennis, mm-hmm. but Agassi's story, I thought was just the perfect way to illustrate a key mistake that I think people make when it comes to approaching change, which is uh, to not approach it strategically enough. 
Hmm. I think the story of his career turnaround, because he was uh, really not doing very well on the pro tour. Now he's a legend and we think of him as this great tennis player, but in the nineties, he had all this hype, all this potential, but really was not achieving his Mm -hmm. peers who no one had expected much of like Michael Chang and Jim Courier and Pete Sampras, they'd all come up together in the juniors and they were outperforming him. And he had, he had not achieved the number one ranking in the world. He was actually ranked around 32 at the time of the story that I tell in the book. Things seemed like they were falling apart. He was flashy and that's why he got attention, but not winning. And he had this fateful dinner that he describes in his autobiography with Brad Gilbert. And Brad Gilbert was this very different kind of player. He'd actually, um, they'd, they'd played each other a bunch of times and Gilbert often beat Agassi, even though Gilbert is much less talented, I think you would describe player. Uh He was just really gritty and strategic on the court. And he'd just written this best-selling book when he, right, right before he had this dinner with Agassi called Winning Ugly, where he detailed the way he basically took his opponents apart by understanding all their weaknesses and how Mm -hmm. strategically he played the game. And this is how he'd achieved the number four ranking in the world when he really had no right to it. Mm -hmm. Agassi, on the other hand, played a completely self-focused kind of tennis. He Mm -hmm. was so talented. He would go for winners on crazy shots and, and he did pretty well, even with that self-focused strategy. And at this dinner, Gilbert said, look, Andre, you are taking too much risk. You're not putting enough on your opponent. You're not thinking about the, the person who's on the opposite side of the net and, and playing a game that will allow you to let them defeat themselves. You're always trying to hit winners and, and make sure that it's all about you and you need to play differently. If all you about learn- you, all exactly. about you. That was the problem that, that Brad identified for, for Agassi. And, and how did that break through to Agassi's thinking? Well, it it was a revelation. He had never recognized this weakness and he ended up taking on Brad Gilbert as his coach. Mm-hmm. Um, he went from, you know, the bottom point, really low point in his career. Uh, at that time, he went to the U.S. Open unseated that year and actually ended up winning um, with this new approach to the game where he, instead of trying to go for winners, he thought about how he could let his opponent make mistakes and how he could be strategic. And it completely changed his career. He ended up spending 101 work weeks at number one in the world. You know, there were other bumps, but this was this pivotal moment. And I think, um, I use the story to talk about- Why is that an important, uh, lesson for all of us and an introduction to a book about engineering change. Yeah. I, I I love that it illustrates how much farther we can get when we actually take account of whatever is in opposition to mm-hmm. us. So on the tennis court, it's your opponent who's across the net and you have to think, you know, do they um, have a weak forehand or if they have to bend for a backhand or if I make them run, you know, what are the things that put them mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, on, de- on defense and how can I win by recognizing those weaknesses? But when it comes to change, it's understanding what are, what are your own internal weaknesses? Mm. What are the obstacles? And then again, being very strategic instead of taking one of these sort of popularized one size fits all approaches, like setting big audacious goals or visualizing success or, you know, building tiny habits, you know, pick your, pick your guru and their, um, and their strategy that they've promoted. It's really at least what I've seen in my career studying this, that the answer depends. There's no one size fits all. It depends on what you're up against. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're facing an obstacle to change that relates to inertia or habits, it's a really different battle that you need to play or battle plan you need to make than if you're facing a challenge related to impulsivity. And, you know, I just, I hate the activity. I, I, I hate going to the gym. It's miserable. Or um, I, I'm really, really frustrated with the, my diet, you know, what, whatever it is, I, I'm frustrated with my colleagues and I can't change the work dynamics because we have such a bad relationship. And I, all I ever want to do is yell at them in the office, whatever. Um... Really? Who are you talking about specifically, <laughs> Katie? Cause we are colleagues. 
I don't Never have mind. that. I don't have Just that kidding. challenge. Just kidding. <laughs> actually, Just kidding. one of the one of the wonderful things about being an academic actually is that we largely get to choose who we work with, um, yeah. which is a really unusual. We have a kind. lot of freedom and flexibility, although there can be some risk associated with too much of that. Yes. We might get to that later. Yes. Right. So it's understanding, and I'm going to just um, quickly list uh, from your very helpful table of contents the main problems people have, and then we'll get into as many of them as we possibly can. First, it's getting started, and we will be getting started on that issue of how to get started in just a moment. But then there is the impulsivity problem, the procrastination problem, the forgetting problem. Wait, what? Um, the laziness problem. The confidence problem, the conformity problem. These are all problems that you can deal with when you're trying to change something. Um, and you've done systematic studies using behavioral science to find solutions to them. So, um, so a pigeon can be a swan. <laughs> oh, now you're going to get me started on the debate over the cover design. Uh -oh. a pigeon cannot be a swan. And for the longest time, in spite of the elegance of this cover concept showing sort of the aspiration uh -huh. of a pigeon to become a swan, I, I was opposed because I said, no, it's like all of the garbage self-help books out there that are, you know, making false promises. It's going to say, you uh -oh. know, because a pigeon can't become a swan. And All right. But you have <laughs> this cover. So please. The head, of, the head of my publishing house said very gently, Katie, it's a metaphor. <laughs> Right. All right. So what did, what did they mean by it's not that? literal? It's not literal. It's about it's meant to convey the idea that we want to be something more beautiful, something more perfect. Mm. And that, you know, striving for that alone can make us better. So th that's the that's okay. the, idea of the pigeon and the swan. All right. It's not that the pigeon is going to turn into a swan. I also have a relative who's very unhappy that it's not the ugly duckling and the swan. But I was like, you know, there's no actual change. They just waited and then the ugly duckling grew up and was a swan. So that wouldn't work either. That's a developmental change, right? <laughs> exactly. Naturally occurring in your body as you grow. But yes. that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the psychology of making change real. And that's what's so wonderful about your book is that it is very much about the real problems that people face every day. And, and your delightful way of bringing the science uh, that you and others have developed to, to help to solve those problems. Let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 132. I'm, I'm your host, Stu Friedman, speaking today with Wharton Professor Katie Milkman, who's just published a wonderful new book, extremely practical. It's called How to Change, The Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be, even if that's just an aspiration, I might add parenthetically about that swan. Well, so why is it so hard to stop thinking about yourself and not your opponent, even if that opponent is some part of yourself? What's, what's the big difficulty there that you have seen? I think the big difficulty is that um, most of the time when we're looking to create change in ourselves or in others, uh, we, we tend to focus on whatever we've heard might work for someone else or whatever we've heard um, seems popular. <laughs> There's just uh, an eagerness to, to jump on the bandwagon mm -hmm. as opposed to a really rigorous thought process that goes into, okay, what exactly is the barrier that is preventing me from succeeding here and making sure that the solution you reach for is suited to it. So, mm -hmm. so that that's what I've seen time and again, working with organizations, you know, oh, I saw, I saw this other company did this. Um, maybe we should try that. Well, but they, do they face the same obstacle that you're up again? It's just a really different challenge. Than yeah. Well, just tell us what worked at Google. We'll do that. Exactly. Exactly. What's wrong with that? Well, you know, there's nothing wrong if it's literally the same problem, right? right. But but the what what goes wrong is where uh, one organization or one individual's challenge is different. And I, I think sort of an example that's really easy to think about is um, think about medication adherence, right? Like a doctor is trying to encourage a patient to take life-saving medication yes. regularly, which so many don't do, right? It turns out something like 40% of people who've had a heart attack six months later are not taking their prescribed meds that will prevent another heart attack. So um, my impulse would be to say, what's wrong with those idiots? But you probably have, <laughs> you probably have a more generous interpretation of that. 
observation. Uh, well, absolutely. Right? If 40% of people aren't doing it, they're not idiots. It's, this is like, this is common, right? It's so, yes. Um, or excuse me, 60% aren't doing it. I think the rate at which people are, are taking their meds wow. is 40%. So, um, so what is going on? And the answer is mm-hmm. it depends on the person and that rather than just sort of slapping them on the head or giving them a lecture, thinking and understanding with them, what is the challenge? You know, are you mm-hmm. forgetting? Do you need a, a routine and a set of reminders that will mm-hmm. make sure that this mm-hmm. doesn't fall by the wayside or are there side effects that you're not liking? And so even though, you know, mm-hmm. what really matters in the long run is staying alive, but the, you know, the day-to-day it, it tastes bad or it feels bad for an hour afterwards that ends up looming larger in your mind when you have to make the decision to take it D- depending on which of those is the barrier mm-hmm. there's a really different solution you'd want to propose right. and so getting to the heart of the problem for change i th- i think is um a mistake so many companies don't do that so many individuals don't do that mm-hmm. and a mistake that i hope to help um prevent well so book. So how do you get people to stop thinking about themselves or just borrowing uh, a ready solution from someone who they admire or think is similar to them and has solved a problem like theirs, even though it is different? How, how do you how do, what would I do? What would anyone do to stop thinking about only their own perspective on their challenge to change and instead to do this kind of rigorous diagnostic that that's required? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, my, my hope in writing the book was that the answer is um, read the book and the book book tries to lay out for you each of the most common barriers. And you just read the table of contents. Um, It's easy to recognize yourself in the challenges. Once you Mm -hmm. have them named and labeled, I keep talking Mm -hmm. to people who say, Oh yeah, that's me. So once, once you identify it, I think one of the challenges is we're not used to thinking about change that way. And I'm hoping to change the, the conversation we have. Um, about change, change in conversation about change is a lot of change. But um, if we can, if we can have a different approach and recognize, like it really, if you, if your goal is to change, you need to figure out where you are, what the barriers are, and that's how you're going to solve it. That's how we get further faster. And not, and not just rush to a solution that you think is going to work, but is really not designed to help you deal with your opponent, your issue. So let's. Let's go to where where many people stumble uh, and and never never get past, and that is getting started. Uh, what is the getting started problem, and what's the main thing we need to know about fresh starts and 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 restarts to get started? Yeah. The getting started problem is that um, finding the moment when you feel truly motivated to actually take action on a change is hard. There, are, most of life is made up of sort of doing the usual, going about your usual routines, and not looking up and thinking about change and and what it is you want to do differently. The status and- quo bias. Yes, you got it. That's how we live our lives for the most part. And so, um, but you have to actually break away from that in order to start down the path to change. Mm -hmm. Um, I got this wonderful question years ago, you were joking about, let's just do what Google does, but I was at an event at Google Mm -hmm. and, and, um, I was talking to some of their human resources directors. They call them people analysts about, research I'd done on, on promoting behavior change, different strategies we could use to encourage, you know, wellness and use of gyms and flu shots and more retirement savings and more productivity. You get the the picture. And I got this great question from um, actually a Wharton alum, Prasad Seti. And he said, you know, Katie, I'm completely sold on the idea that we should be using these techniques and offering these tools and nudges to our employees. But is there some ideal time when we could encourage them to change and to engage in this kind of self-improvement? Is there like a moment when they're more motivated than others and would be particularly receptive to this? And it that was like a career changing moment for me because I, I vividly remember like the light bulb going off like, wow, I don't think anyone has studied that. It's such an obviously important problem in question. I'm going to go try to figure that out. Hmm. And I had. I had an immediate answer, which came to mind and I was wondering about, but then I, I went and teamed up with my, now um, my former doctoral student, Heng Chen Dai, who's a professor at UCLA and Jason Reese, who's a senior fellow at Wharton and started talking to them about this. And my first intuition about the problem was, you know, New Year's. We all know that at New Year's, people mm-hmm. are particularly motivated to pursue their goals, mm-hmm. but we started talking about the idea that maybe 
there's a broader set of moments in our life when we feel like we have a fresh start, the way New Year's gives us that sort of new beginning, clean mm-hmm. slate feeling. Um, and, and we started studying that and, and found indeed that there are all of these moments that do feel like new beginnings to us. They can be as small as the start of a new week, more momentous, like the celebration of a birthday um, or stepping into a new job or a new home, um, the start of spring, the celebration of a holiday that feels like a fresh start, like Labor Day. Uh, so there are all these moments and they they come with. Um, yeah. What is it about a, a new a new day even, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, You know, many people wake up and the first thing that they do is just, you know, be thankful for the day and and think about the day ahead. And it is a new beginning each day. What is it about thinking about life afresh that opens one to uh, perhaps having greater, greater will to, to, and, you know, to muster, to, to, to push against the status quo bias? Well, we think there are a few things. So one thing is that um, those moments that feel like new beginnings in our lives, they feel like the start of a new chapter, they make us actually feel like a new person. And Hmm. You know, the the person I was last year on January one feels further away, literally like that, that, that was the old me and this is the new me. And so if the old me didn't quit smoking or get along with their colleagues or cook enough fresh meals that, you know, those were the failings almost of a different person. The new me can do it. So we have this, this disconnect that arises in our um, identity and that mm-hmm. gives us more optimism that we can achieve things we'd previously not achieved. Mm-hmm. It also happens to be the case that at these moments, we um, we tend to step back and think big picture about our lives because we see them as a fresh start. We see a dis, you know, a, the status quo bias is disrupted by this um, fresh start. You said some people in the morning just think about their their gratitude for the day at the beginning of a new year. There's a mm-hmm. lot of reflection. We celebrate. We think about it's a new year. This can happen with the new week or when you celebrate a birthday and people think about pray your in the morning, you know, many Got religious it. practices have you wake up. The first thing you do is just thank your God for your life and to think, okay, how am I going to make the most of this day to serve humanity, serve whatever I, it is that I think about as God, uh, that there's a, a commitment to a kind of redemption all the time or, you know, on, on this, this regular pattern following the sun, but there are many ways of of creating fresh starts. And it, what you're pointing to is that people think differently about who they are. Yes. And I love, by the way, that you brought up religion, because it is amazing to me how many religions have built in fresh starts. Right. Um, And this is like a part of, you know, from um, Easter to Yom Kippur to, um, you know, confession and, uh, ablution ceremonies. There's just all these different ways that different religions try to create that same baptism sense that, you know, your old, the old you and the old mistakes have been washed away and cleansed. And this is a new beginning. Redemption is possible. Exactly. There's always hope so long as you're alive. Yeah. And I think that's a really powerful way to spur change. I don't think it's an accident that so many religions landed on this idea. Uh, and, um, if we can take advantage of that, that's a really great way to get started. So any way that helps you to reimagine yourself as beginning anew is going to help you to get over the, the tendency to just, oh, I'm just going to do what I did yesterday. That, that seems to be the case. So we've run studies. We both looked observationally and see, you know, that people are more likely to, you know, visit the gym, set goals, search for the term diet at these special dates that we've identified as, as landmark dates, like the start of a new week or month or year or following birthdays and so on. But we also see that if we encourage someone, if someone's interested in pursuing change, and then we um, label a date in a way that makes it clear it's a new beginning, uh-huh. that date becomes a more attractive moment to start. So for instance, we did one experiment where we were inviting people who weren't saving for retirement. They could start saving now or at a future date. And the future date was either if, if their birthday, for instance, was in three months, we'd flip a coin and decide whether we invited them to start saving in three months or after their next birthday, which is, of course, an identical option. But right. uh, it's just a framing change in one different case label calling out the fresh start. Yeah. So we did experiments like that with um, savings. We did some with just getting reminders to pursue a goal. What we see is that people are more likely to choose that date or more likely to start saving yep. when we have that fresh start label attached. So it can be used both 
we both are naturally attracted to these moments Mm -hmm. when they just occur, but we can also use it as a nudge by literally changing the labels we put on dates. We can make people more motivated and more likely to actually begin change. Amazing. And, you know, I want to point out before we go to break, which we're going to have to do in just a second, that you come at all of this work as an engineer, right? Your, your training was not in psychology originally. It was as, as an engineer, correct? That's right. I've literally never taken a psychology class. Okay. Well, I will confess that I've never taken an economics class. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I've been a professor at the Wharton School since 1984. How about that? I, I'm probably the only one who can claim that. Um, but there might be a few others who have never taken a psychology class. I'm guessing. What do you think? I, I would I would bet that's true. <laughs> <laughs> well, so when we come back, uh, I want to get into some of these other problems. We're not going to be able to cover them all, but uh, we will get into some with your advice based on your remarkable program of research. Katie Milkman, hang in there. Uh, We'll be continuing our conversation in just a minute about your marvelous new work out now. It's called How to Change, the science of getting from where you are to where you want to be. I'm Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We will be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I am the founder of Total Leadership, which is a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping people and organizations create harmony among the different parts of life. Been at the Wharton School for decades and thrilled to be hosting this show and that you are here listening in to my conversation with Katie Milkman who is an award-winning behavioral scientist and the James G. Dinan professor at the Wharton School of the University of Pennsylvania, a true rock star in our midst. She's just published a book that I know is going to help so many people. It's called How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be. Katie, we were talking about getting started. There's more to say about that, um, but I want to move to... uh, to the other problems, you know, once you figure out uh, how to reset to find a fresh start, um, there, there are a bunch of other stumbling blocks. What, though, about the pandemic has created opportunities for fresh starts for people that that you've been thinking about or that you've seen? Yeah, well, especially as we're hopefully about to emerge on the other end, at least in the United States, it feels like we're finally beating this thing back. And I got my second vaccine yesterday. I'm feeling very good about that. Mm -hmm. Um, That's a real opportunity because not only are we all going to have sort of the largest collective feeling of a fresh start and a new chapter beginning that has probably faced the country since the end of World War II, I would venture, I guess. Yeah. But we also have a a real change coming with it, not just psychological, not just a new chapter is opening, but so many of us will be going back to long abandoned offices, to Mm -hmm. seeing loved ones who we weren't able to see, to um, schools, to shuttered restaurants. As we rejoin society and reopen, Mm -hmm. there will be opportunities because um, fresh starts are sort of two parts to a fresh start. One is the psychological component, and that's what we've talked about already. Mm-hmm. But there's also a literal component when there's a moment in your life of change uh, and you have a clean slate in terms of routines because you're starting something new, like going back to an office you haven't visited in a year or a year mm-hmm. and a half. Mm-hmm. You don't have your morning routine. You don't have your lunch spot. You don't have your breakfast spot. You don't mm-hmm. have your commute. Mm-hmm. All of those things until you get into the hang of them, which could happen quick, pretty quickly. But you have an opportunity to say, you know, I'm going to do it differently now. I actually want to have two hours of focused, uninterrupted work time every morning before I get into meetings. And, you know, I'm not going to commute um, by car anymore. I'm going to take a bike because I want to live a healthier life. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to go to the burrito bar anymore. I'm going to go to the salad bar. So there are all these things that you can change before, um, before habit kicks in. And Mm -hmm. I think that's another big part of this moment. That's an opportunity. So, so before we, 
uh, close on that topic, do you have any specific advice about what people can be doing as we hopefully uh, emerge from pandemic lifestyle into a new order of things? Yeah, there's a couple of things that I would advise. So one of them is that I've been thinking about a lot is that this pandemic, it was many things. It was many awful things. We lost many, many lives. It, you know, it was horrific, the economic consequences, the health consequences. So I, I don't want to make light of any of that, but it was also an, an experiment Yes. In the following way, we we ex- we were forced to experiment with things we would never have tried otherwise, right? With virtual concerts and Zoom meetings and Zoom celebrations, right? And with different ways of exercise, if we used to go to the gym and with different ways of, of building a social community. And a lot of those experiments didn't work out, right? A lot of us are like, nope, no, I want that. No more, never again. I will never do, you know, never another Zoom meeting maybe. Mm-hmm. But but for some things, we probably actually discovered something that worked better because yeah, we were for sure forced to try something new. So the yeah. first thing I think is that we should make sure we reflect on which of those things that we try that we never would have tried otherwise during uh-huh. the pandemic year, we actually want to keep doing. Um, for me, my family, we started taking hikes in the Wissahickon, which is one of Philly's, um, it's Philly's big park system on weekends. We used to, you know, always be at a birthday party or at a museum or, you know, and, and I actually loved the time we spent in the outdoors. And I feel like it, it's a better use of our family time than many of the things we were doing before. Yeah. So I'm going to keep doing that yep. uh, rather than just going back to the old thing. So that's just one example, but you know, there's, there's a need for us to, to be reflective about what we want to carry forward. Um, and then I guess the second thing I'd say is just being purposeful, taking some time to sit down, think about what are your goals mm-hmm. in this new era? This is a fresh start moment. It's a perfect time for reflection and mm-hmm. for planning. How will you achieve those things? Mm-hmm. Um, the more concrete the plan, the better, you know, if, an if then statement is the best kind of plan research shows. So uh, I think goal setting, planning, this is a great moment for those What's an if then statement? activity. Well, so. this is based on research by um, Peter Golwitzer at NYU, who's really the expert on, he calls them implementation intentions. Uh, and it, what he's basically shown is that when we have a goal, our intuition is normally to form a plan. Like I'm going to do more of X, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to exercise more. <laughs> okay. And that's where we leave it. And then we're like, Oh yeah, that will magically happen. Cause I intend to exercise more, but, um, a much better way to form a plan is to say, um, if X happens, then I will exercise. And so let me give you an example. Um, if it is 5 PM on a Tuesday, Wednesday, or Thursday, then I will go for a run. So it's a really concrete plan around exactly mm-hmm. when you will execute your intentions. So you formed an implementation intention and people are much more likely to follow through on the kinds of plans that they have um, stated in that way. All right. Okay. I, I have so many things I want to learn from you, Katie, about the other problems people face when, when trying to make intentional change happen. We're only going to get to a couple, but let's get to some of them impulsivity. What is the impulsivity problem? I think everybody knows, but (laughs) have you met a human who doesn't know? Right. (laughs) Of course. But it's like, how do you define that? And what, what have you discovered about how to deal with that opponent? Well, economists would call it present bias. And what that means is that in general, rather than thinking about all of our objectives in life and weighting them equally, we tend to focus much too much and put too much weight on what's going to provide immediate utility in econ terms or immediate value, immediate gratification. And so that means when there's a bowl of chips sitting in front of you, but you are trying to watch your weight, you reach for the chips because oh, it's going to taste so good and I just can't resist. Or when you should be um, you know, holding your temper with a difficult colleague, you just yell because you're frustrated and you can't resist. Um, You can think of all sorts of examples of situations, right? Where um, we give into that temptation, that present bias, instead of doing what we know is better in the long run. Okay. So once we recognize that this is a barrier, it turns out there's a lot of research that suggests ways we can do better, that we can overcome the present bias that might lead us to sit on the couch instead of going to the gym or eat, um, 
junk food instead of healthy food. Uh, or screaming at that test. colleague who's annoying you so much. <laughs> yes, yes, I keep coming to that. Right. Um, right. Or, or studying. I think actually this is another really important one or focusing on a work project instead of social media, which beckons. So um, mm-hmm. the, the big mistake that I think we make and that research points to is too often we think if I just focus on that big goal, if I just push through, if I, you know, follow Nike's advice, if I just do it, Mm. I will with focus be able to, to make the right choices. And, uh, I yell at Fishbach and Caitlin Woolley academics from university of Chicago and Cornell respectively have this wonderful research showing that's wrong. That if instead people try to pursue their goals in a way that was more fun, they would actually get farther because we ultimately make so many of our decisions on the basis of whether it's enjoyable in the moment, that if we can make the things that are good for us, the things that are aligned with our goals more enjoyable, we'll persist longer. All right. So it's just, instead of just do it, it's just have fun is what you're saying. Right. And there's a, you know, there's a bit of engineering to that, Okay, but, but yes. the focus needs to be on, on looking for the fun way to your goal instead of the. So can you give an example way. of something that is, you know, really significant to you and your life's purpose, but it's hard and it's, but it's, you know, it's, it's who you want to become, uh, but it's difficult. How do you make it fun? Can you give us an example of that? Yeah. Well, really important to your life purpose is a high bar, but <laughs> Okay. Let me, let me give you an example of that's a little lighthearted. I don't know if I'd say it's really related to my life's purpose, but I think it, it does a nice job illustrating this point. All right. All and right. then maybe you can give me an example that's really related to your life purpose. That, okay. That perfect for it. Um, one of the ways that I used this principle um, was as a graduate student. And I had a problem, actually I had a couple problems. One problem was I was an engineering graduate student. My problem sets were not all that fun and I dreaded doing them after a long day. Uh, And what I really wanted to do was, you know, indulge in entertainment, binge watch TV. I was into, I love novels. I wanted to just curl up and read, um, not sit down and do my work. So that was one problem. And then the other problem was I'd been a lifelong athlete. I knew that to maintain my focus and well-being, it was really important to get to the gym, but I could not motivate myself to do that after a long day of classes. So I came up with a solution that I think uses this principle, this make it fun principle, and I call it temptation bundling. Mm-hmm. I only allowed myself to listen to tempting audio novels. I, I decided to do it with novels. Some people do it with TV, but for me, novels were just right. I only got to listen to tempting audio novels while I was exercising at the gym. So I, you know, download a book like an Alex Cross mystery or a um, Harry Potter, Hunger Games, Twilight. You get the, <laughs> you get the idea. Something really fast paced and engaging with okay. lots of cliffhangers. And I, I, I'd be listening to it at the gym and it did a few things. One at the end of a long day, I started to crave trips to the gym to find out what would happen next in my novel. Um, Two, the time would just fly by while I was exercising. I didn't even notice the pain of the workout. It was gone because I was so engrossed. And three, I stopped wasting time at home and procrastinating on my work because I'd already gotten my entertainment fix in. By the time I came back from the gym, I was energized. I was ready to go. I was ready to focus on on my assignments. So I ended up studying that years later and showing that I'm not the only one who can benefit from temptation bundling, but I think it illustrates a nice way of thinking about making something fun. If you can link it with something else enjoyable, if you have a goal and doing it itself is not inherently tremendously fun, can you find something else that is that you only let yourself indulge in while, while pursuing the goal? Mm -hmm. Um, So Examples I give my students sometimes are, you know, if you're having trouble hitting the books, you could imagine only letting yourself pick up your favorite snack or beverage um, on the way to the library. Or, you know, if you're trying to cook more homemade meals and you love red wine, only let yourself drink a glass while you're preparing a fresh meal for your family uh, or only letting yourself listen to your favorite podcasts or your watch your favorite TV show while you're doing household chores. So there's lots of different ways we can link things that that are fun and instantly gratifying with those things that aren't in order to get present bias working for us instead of against us on our goals. So how then does one deal with the temptation to unbundle and simply yield to that temptation? 
It is such a great question. And I, I, um, there's two answers to that. One okay. is that we seem to be decent at following rules we set for ourselves along mm. the lines of, you know, I get a little of this in under these circumstances. That seems it's, it's sort of like an Atkins diet. <laughs> right? Like We can follow boundaries and create mental accounts. As long as we get the indulgence under certain circumstances, uh-huh. um, there's we're, we're decent at it. I see. Um, but you're absolutely right that the best form is if you have some sort of external, um, rule imposed, right? So the ideal would be like your gym only lets you, you you have a subscription to Netflix and it's geotagged to your gym and you can only watch your favorite shows when you're in that location. So that would be the ideal is someone helps you with it. And actually there's a chapter of my book where I talk about um, commitment devices, which are tools like that, that create restrictions that um, link something motivating to, uh, to the right moment or the right time and place. So, uh-huh. so you could imagine trying to create some sort of commitment devices. Like you only get to see your best friend while you go for a jog together. That would be one way to do All it. Right, so linking fun with the things that you know you want to do. Uh, let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio. It's Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm speaking today with Wharton Professor Katie Milkman about her new book, How to Change, the Science of Getting from Where You Are to Where You Want to Be bundling uh, the temptations with the stuff that you know you need to do and you want to do. What about the forgetting problem, which is something that at 68 years old, I have had more of than I used to when I was younger. Um, So putting aside age as a variable in this equation of how to get past the forgetting problem, what have you discovered in your research on how to deal with, oh yeah, I forgot. Well, first of all, I think sometimes people make light of this one, but I, it's actually a bigger deal than most people appreciate. Yeah. Uh, it turns out if you ask voters who missed an election why, what, who, and who said they intended to vote, why they didn't go, most common answer is I forgot. Uh, a lot of people forget to get their colonoscopy or their flu shot, and mm-hmm. you forget to set up your 401k contribution. And these things can have big consequences. Why don't so, we just uh, make the first Tuesday in November a national holiday so that nobody has to work and that the only thing that you're supposed to do on that day is freaking vote. How about that, Katie? Would that solve the problem? That would be great. I'm a hundred percent for that. But you, but otherwise, you know, you're struggling to like, Oh, I've worked the kids, everything's getting to school. I've got to feed everybody, et cetera, et cetera. Oh yeah. Voting. Anyway, I digress, but not really. <laughs> No, it's a really important issue. Um, but so there's a number do- of things that 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 can work to help us forget less. Yeah. Um, so the obvious thing is a reminder, right? Can you scr- structure reminders set up? And we have a lot of devices and technology to help create reminder systems. And like dentists mm-hmm. are great at this, by the way, with the postcard that they put in the mail and you can't leave one visit until you schedule the next and the postcard's coming the day before. Now it's a digital reminder or a text. Um, dentists so- are good about that. Really good. At what it. is it about dentists that they're so good about building in these reminders? This is their business. They have it's the thing that you would, you know, don't really want to do, but you should do. So well, they've learned probably like, because nobody wants to go to the freaking dentist. So they've learned they have to build in those reminders, right? Exactly. I think the dentists have it figured out, but then the rest of us need to be as sophisticated as the dentists about all the things that are important to remember in life. Um, one thing about reminders that I think is really interesting and underappreciated is that they actually only work when they are delivered right at the moment when you can take action. So there's Uh this wonderful study that looks at valets of all things, reminding people to buckle up. And there's two different experimental conditions that are interesting. One is a condition where the valet takes your key and like is going to dash off to get your car and come back with it three minutes later and says, Hey, remember to buckle up. Uh Uh-huh. And the other reminder condition, they come back with your car, open the door for you and say, remember to buckle up. So in one case, that's three minutes before that they give you the reminder before you could take action. The other case, it's right at the moment when you can take action. And this is, of course, compared with a control with no reminder. And the finding from the study is that the reminder three minutes in advance has no effect. (laughs) Totally useless. Three minutes is enough to have forgotten by the time the car comes. Well, there's so much going on in that three minute period while you're, you know, hanging out in the lobby, you're seeing and being seen, you're just (laughs) distracted and who knows what's going on until, oh yeah, my car's here again. 
Exactly. In the other case, it, it has something like a 30%, um, you know, 30 percentage points more people, wow. like 55% buckle up to 85 um, when they give you the reminder right in time. And what, what it highlights that I think is really important is if if someone reminds you to do something and you can't take action right then, they might as well not remind you. It's It's basically useless, right? Someone tells you pick up the milk on the way home unless you put it in your calendar and it, then the calendar alert. So, so right. the challenge with that is, okay, reminders are great. Technology is great. If we can use it to give us the reminder in the moment when we need it, that's going to solve the problem, but we need more because we actually need sometimes. So, and sometimes it, there's not a time it's like when I'm next in CVS or when I next see this person, I need to. And mm-hmm. so how do you do that? And that's where some of the most interesting research comes in around um, creating uh, cues because the way that memory is stored in our minds is through vivid cues that if, if we see that cue, it triggers a recall if we've associated with. So if you've heard of memory palaces, which are this, um, you know, really interesting memory device that they've been around for thousands of years, hmm. the idea and, and spies train with them. The idea is that if you want to embed something in memory, you, you want to visualize it in a context that's really vivid to you. Mm. So a memory mm. palace is like your house. You, you can take a route through your house in your mind. And if you want to remember a list of items, you would uh, say like lemons and muffins that you and, and prescription drugs that you need to pick up. You'd like adorn the living room with lemons, which is the first thing you walk through. Then you're, you imagine your kitchen filled with mm. muffins and then the bathroom right next to it um, prescriptions. And then so later those in the cues day, it, give you the reminders that you need that you can hold on to that you that, and not forget. Exactly. So we, when we can create these vivid associations and, and create those kinds of cues, and that's why one of the reasons actually cue-based plans that I mentioned earlier, Peter Golwitzer has studied can be so effective because they use a trigger or a cue. You think about, you know, if it's this date or time, that is when I will right. um, go to the gym. Uh-huh. It, it helps with forgetting. Um, we did a, a study where we use that kind of cue-based plan making to encourage people to get a flu shot. And we randomly assigned some people to be encouraged to just get a flu shot at a free on-site clinic at their employer and told them the dates and times uh-huh. and other people got an identical mailing with an extra line that just said write down the date and time when you intend to get your flu shot so we're getting them to make that hmm. detailed plan they don't mail it back to anyone they just do it in the privacy of their own home maybe not they don't even write it down they just get asked the question so maybe they but think about generating it. the plan Exactly. That date and time. And now when that moment comes, it's going to trigger recall. And what we see is that increases vaccination rates significantly. Um, and in fact, the effect is biggest at the clinics that had the shortest time window for getting a flu shot. We're forgetting is going to be the biggest risk, right? So one day only flu shot clinics, this had this huge impact oh. about an eight percentage point boost in turnout, uh, compared to multi-day clinics. So wow you can use those kinds of plans to help yourself follow through. So that that's uh, that's saving lives, Katie, you know, as we wrap up here, I'd love to hear your thoughts about the behavior change for good initiative at Wharton and what your aspirations, what's the swan of the behavior change for good initiative look like? Well, our aspiration is to, you know, have this book look like just a drop in the, in the pond of knowledge. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> about change in 20 years or 30 years to really advance what we know tremendously. Um, we're doing a new kind of science at the Behavior Change for Good initiative. Um, we call them mega studies. And the way that we've designed the initiative is we have a team of about 150 interdisciplinary scientists around the world, all of whom are interested in, in behavior change, but with different perspectives from you know computer science or sociology to psychology and economics to medicine. And um, we partner with big organizations, say, you know, a Walmart or 24-hour fitness, where there's some behavior the organization is eager to change and able to measure. And we um, go to our team of scientists and say, you know, Walmart wants to nudge people to get flu vaccines or 24-hour fitness wants to encourage people to go to the gym more regularly. What are your best ideas? And we run a tournament. We take all the ideas at once and run a massive experiment. We call them mega studies, testing lots and lots of different hypotheses, all in the same pe- sort of population on the same time frame with the same outcome variable so that we can make comparisons and say, you know, here's an apples to apples comparison. This technique for change or for encouraging change is about twice as effective as this other technique. And, and, um, and it gets people talking across disciplines, uh, but able to each run their own studies in, in their own bubble inside of this mega study so they can publish in their preferred journals and so on. And it's been just a, a really wonderful adventure. 
And and what's what's the the larger goal? So twenty years from now, this is this book will be remembered fondly as a drop in this big pond. What's the impact that the Behavior Change for Good initiative is designed to have? In just two sentences, to vastly accelerate knowledge about what works to change behavior. Yeah. I only give you one sentence. Is that okay? <laughs> That's great. Um, and, and that is a noble aspiration, Katie. Uh, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. Can you um, just say one more thing about what, what you hope your work will do for the next generation? You're, you're a mother. You're thinking about that. You're thinking about that generally. Uh, again, just a couple sentences. What's, what's the hope that you have for, for the people who are coming after us? My hope from a practical perspective is that they'll have many more tools and a much better chance when they have an aspiration. Um, it'll be clear how to approach it mm-hmm. and, and give themselves the best ch- shot at success. I think we've had lots of tools out there, lots of ideas out there, lots of gurus suggesting ways that you can change. And I hope science can actually give people um, a leg up in that in that battle that we're all always fighting to achieve our aspirations. How can people find out more about your book and, uh, and, and all the other work that you're, you're doing at the, at the behavior change for good initiative and elsewhere. Probably the best place is on my website, which is just katiemilkman.com. And I'm Katie with a Y like Katy Perry. <laughs> uh, there's information about the book, my podcast, the behavior change for good initiative, my newsletter, milkman delivers, um, which, which is a monthly newsletter with interviews with scientists about behavioral science. Uh-huh. Um, so that's all, all on my website. Awesome. Katie, thank you so much for joining us today and for doing the wonderful work you're doing. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It was really fun. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. And if you have a question about something you heard on the show, you can email me. I'm Friedman at Wharton.upenn.edu. I'm at Stu Friedman on Twitter. You can find free edited versions of this uh, show as a podcast at totalleadership.org. All kinds of other useful stuff at that site as well. Thanks, Patty Hall, our producer, our sound engineer, Chris Tooks. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.